Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient to the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Wealth Advisor and Director of Client Experience for Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building, and also in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building, across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. My guest today is Phil Remmers, an attorney with Kramer, Multoff & Hammes. Phil, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me once again. Phil, what I was hoping we could talk about today is this is an exciting time of the year. The weather is finally getting warm in Wisconsin. Kids are done with school. There's a lot of anticipation leading up into the fall. Now, my kids aren't quite at the stage of leaving the nest yet, but so many of our clients' kids are leaving home for the first time and preparing for college in the fall. Tell me a little bit about what those top topics are that you think parents and kids really need to be thinking about as they prepare to leave home. Well, you, you bring up an interesting point. Maybe it's not just about kids going away to college, but kids just kind of leaving. Um, one of my own, um, my oldest son, just actually moved down to Austin um, just last week, and so we're going through some of these same issues and talking about them. So I think there's a number of um, topics that we can talk about. Um, they don't all collate together. Um, there are kind of a, a, a number of range of topics, and so I think we'll just kind of touch on all of them, talk a little bit, and go from there. That sounds great, Phil. Um, do you want to start with some of the legal documents? That's one of the things that I know is always a concern when we go through the estate planning piece with you with our clients, is what do, what do our clients' kids who have turned 18 need to have to be prepared for? Yeah, um, and, and there are a number of documents that we do like to see them get in place, and I know, you know, here at Ellen Becker, that's quite important to you and that you've kind of always um, you know, encouraged once kids get to 18 to get kind of the proper documents in place. And now we're not, we're not talking about like we would do for, you know, people that are maybe more, more established. We're not always talking about having to do wills and trusts and things that more complicated. But it is good to get um, a, a number of documents in place. And those really come down to um, the one document would be a health care power of attorney. And what you're doing here is your child would be appointing someone to make health care decisions for you if they couldn't make those decisions themselves. Um, and so this can become important. If they become sick, they're not able to make decisions that you'd be able to step in for them and make those decisions. And so this can happen a number of different ways. Um, when my son went away to college a few years ago, um, the same one that just moved to Austin, he had um, appendicitis two days after he after he got there. So we ran up to Madison, walked into the you know the hospital, and they're like, "Well, you know what? He's 18. We can't talk to you. He's in surgery not right now, so we'll report on it. You know when he comes out and he can give." And so that was on me, of course, as my older child. I went and got um, had those put put in, in place. But as my more children, you know, came about, um, I just didn't stay on top of that. So kind of learned my lesson a little bit there. 
You know, I've talked to so many parents during the financial planning process that are legitimately shocked to find out that they don't have any control over their kids when they turn 18. Many 18-year-olds are still seniors in high school, um, but even that, even the ones that are off at college, as you, I'm sure, know very well, they're not financially independent. Um, I'm sure you and your wife are still doing many things for those kids, even though they're legal adults. So I guess that's the that's the big takeaway is they're viewed as legal adults by by the state. No, that's absolutely true, and uh, and I would love to say uh, that my kids were off the payroll, as I like to say, but <laughs> but but you're right, they they seem to hang around for a little bit of time. But again, that's why it is important to get these um, documents in place. And another important document that can go along with that is a HIPAA release form. And this is basically so that the medical professionals can share information, you know, with the parents. And again, this can become important. Um, you know, I, what I'd like to, you know, use the example is um, my kids have, you know, have acne issues and, and that. And so their moms always needed to call the pharmacists and dealing with the doctors and that sort of thing. And again, as they turn 18, um, her taking care of that didn't necessarily go away. Um, but she doesn't have the same rights to talk talk with them. And so, um, again, what you want to do is have a health care power of attorney in place so you can make health care decisions for your children, but then you would also want to have a HIPAA so that even if they're not incapacitated, that it's just from a convenience standpoint that you can talk to those medical professionals then. That's definitely something that I think we don't think about all that often because it is so easy to talk to our kids' doctors when they're under 18 and prescriptions and all of those things. Phil, what would happen, so you mentioned your son with appendicitis and the doctor wanted to wait until he was in recovery so he could essentially give his consent for sharing information. If that had been a situation where your son was incapacitated, let's say a car accident um, and he's in a coma, you know, something horrible like that, and you don't have a power of attorney for health care, what typically happens? What do parents have to do to act for their kids? Right. If it's not just a temporary where, you know, later on that they can give their consent to it, but it would be a, a longer-term incapacity, generally what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go to court and get a guardianship proceeding and, and start a guardianship proceeding and get named as the guardian of your children. And this can be something that takes uh, around three months. It's going through a court procedure, social workers or um, need to be hired doctors to evaluate them. Um, you, usually you have to have another attorney on another side. So it gets kind of complicated and gets a little expensive. But what I always like to say is it's about $3,000 and about three months worth of time, including the court hearing and that sort of thing. So it's a simple document you know, that, that can be done. Um, it's, there's a state form healthcare power of attorney. It really is a very good form in the state of Wisconsin. You can go to the Wisconsin Health and Human Services website you know, get that document, you know, fill it out. It just needs two witnesses, and then you'll have that flexibility. Same thing with the HIPAA release, that you can get that from that same um, website, um, fill that out, and then they would be able to share medical information as well. So it sounds like there's no excuse for not getting these forms signed, essentially. Probably, probably not, no. One of the things that we really value about working with you, Phil, and some of our other estate planning attorneys, too, is that you're always really good during those fact-finding meetings with our clients of finding out how old their kids are, how close they are to turning 18, and planting that seed early on that when they turn 18, they need to have these documents. And then your office and your wonderful staff helps facilitate them getting those forms done if they need any help with the state forms or want something um, a little bit more detailed. We often encourage our clients when they're going through their own estate planning process to really talk to their kids about what these documents mean 
in particular, you know, sharing the healthcare attorney, I've heard you say before, it's not supposed to be someone else making decisions for you. It's supposed to be someone voicing what you would want if you're unable to, you know, give that opinion. So it's important to clue your adult children in on those conversations too, and it's an easy lead-in to making sure that they've done this planning too. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a it's a good idea, and a lot of times when we're doing the parents' planning, we just go ahead and do that, you know, as part of that planning, and it just makes it a little bit easier there. Um, but then I think the last document kind of that goes along with that is, you know, you want to have the healthcare power of attorney, the HIPAA, but also a financial power of attorney, so that again, if your kids were sick, they were not able to make their own financial decisions because they were sick. And again, we have a long-term incapacity issue going on again, that you'd be able to step in and make um, financial decisions for them. So um, to gather information, you know, financially to deal with, you know, government agencies and to even be able to deal with their own finances. Sounds like another really important document. Bill, one of my clients recently asked about the financial power of attorney for their son that's in college and mentioned how he's an entrepreneurial, you know, spirit and um, is applying for all these patents and all these things. Is that typically covered under a financial power of attorney as well, that intellectual property? You know, for example, being able to access social media accounts, the um, LLCs, those types of things, if, if kids have that set up? Well, you generally, you know, get it set up so that they can do virtually every action that your children could do or, or that, that the principal, the person that fills out that document could do. You would want to give them as broad as possible. It's become important in the last few years because of the digi- digital accounts that you have a certain, that you have a specific paragraph kind of relating to that and giving that type of authorization. Now, usually, generally, will not give you um, the ability to do everything. It will not give you the ability to um, change beneficiary designations, create wills and create trusts, um, that sort of thing, so that you can't be changing their estate plan per se. But really about anything else out there, it'll give kind of carte blanche for. Sure. So it's really there to help them through that difficult period of time when they're unable to act for themselves. Right. And again, you normally would set it up so that you know the person could only act for them if they couldn't act for themselves. So that there's not a lot of risk that somebody's going to be utilizing it when they don't need it, but only once it's been activated, which usually requires um, a letter or an activation form signed by two doctors then. Great, Phil. Thank you so much for that information. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about preparing to launch and what that means for our 18-year-old kids. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is Phil Rummers, an attorney with Kramer, Maltoff & Hammes. Prior to our break, we were talking about preparing to launch and what that means for our children. Um, we still think of them as children, even though they're 18, they're legal adults, and what type of legal documents really need to be in place to ensure success as they move off to college um, or into the working arena for them. Phil, I wanted to take some time to talk about living situations for these kids that are going off to college or moving out on their own. Tell me a little bit about what needs to happen as far as leases with apartments and properties. I mean, I'm sure many of these kids don't have credit records yet um, to really be able to do that on their own. 
No, and, and there's there's a couple aspects of leases um, that that I'd like to talk about. And traditionally, I've kind of talked about this kind of in the college setting. But I did have one of my daughter's friends, or is just moving to New York City, and it was interesting. Even you know, though she's been a couple of years out of college and moving there, um, because her income wasn't high enough, they were requiring that her parents guarantee it, and then the parents had to show that I think that they had at least $8,500 worth of income per month. So it was, it was wow. kind of incredible, you know, the, the detail that, that they were acquiring there. You think that maybe once you're out of college, you know, you understand why maybe college landlords are doing that. But the fact that they're doing this in New York City and then not just taking any, you know, any signature that they're going to make sure that they're doing credit checks on the parents and that sort of thing. So I do think it's important to kind of take a look at this. I mean, a lot of our kids you know, are going off into the workplace for the first time maybe. They are going away to college. Um, they don't have the, the credit, as you, as you indicated. And the landlords then um, want some guarantee that they're going to get paid. And so there's a couple of things that we should kind of be looking at here. Um, first of all, that when, you're, when your kids are signing a lease, that they need to understand, and, and you need to understand that before we get into talking about guarantees, that most of those leases are going to be what attorneys would call joint and several liability. And so let's just kind of focus on the joint part of that, which basically means that any of the kids on that lease, you may think, well, my child is one child out of four, and so they would be responsible for 25% of the, the lease payments. That's not true. They would be responsible for 100% of the lease payments. If there was any damage done, that they would be 100% um, responsible for that. Um, if there was some type of accident that happened. Somebody fell over, um, they tripped on a rug, and those sorts of things. And so what you want to do is, you know, make sure that your kids are knowing who their roommates are to the extent, you know, that you can, that, you know, that these are, you know, good kids that they're going to, you know, be able to pay and kind of step up. Um, you know, I had somebody call me the other day, and they were like, hey, what can we do? Um, we entered into the lease and our ch child doesn't want to be with them anymore. I want to get out of it. And I'm like, well, that's not going to be so easy. You know, they're on that lease now. And, and, the, and the year hadn't even started. It's for this coming year. And another one where one of the boys had already backed out said they were going to not pay. And I'm like, well, you're still going to be, you know, responsible for it. The story that I've, I've told over the years, though, um, is, is the one where one of the, the college students came back for Christmas break. And um, while they were back here in you know, Waukesha County on Christmas break, their roommates were still up at, at college and set the, the, um, the curtains on fire in the kitchen, and there was a, a pretty major fire. And, you know, they went through the landlord's, you know, insurance and that sort of thing, but then the insurance company was subrogating their claim and going after all of the tenants. And so their son was unresponsible for even though he wasn't in there. So, again... That's how that joint liability works. It's not just, you know, you're responsible for you. You're responsible for everything that can happen in there. And so that's why it's important to read those leases, you know, understand what you're responsible for. Well, and I think that's really important to note, Phil. I think most of us, when we think back to our college days about picking roommates, it was all about the emotional, social side of it. There's a financial component to making sure that you're going to be able to live with these roommates, that they're responsible, that their parents are involved. Um, that's a lot of risk that you just described. Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. Um, and so that's my big lead up to a lot of these landlords then are requiring that the parents, you know, guarantee, you know, those leases. 
And so you really do want to be, you know, careful on what you're signing. I mean, it's easy to say, well, this is what they're requiring. Just go ahead and sign it. Fortunately, or probably unfortunately for my kids, um, I put my kids through a lot of pain here because I tell them I'm just not, there's certain guarantees I will do and there's other ones I will not do. I will tell them that I will guarantee, you know, rent um, and I will guarantee your rent, but I'm not going to guarantee you know, other things. So if there's a fire there, if somebody gets hurt there, I'm not guaranteeing those subrogation claims and, and those sorts of things. Um, and so we go back and forth and they'll send me it and then I'll mark it up and I'll send it back, you know, the, to the landlord and, and we'll kind of go back and forth. Um, and I'd be able to, you know, kind of insulate that a little bit. But I think it's important to look at it. Does it say that you are guaranteeing all obligations under this lease? Does it say you're gu- guaranteeing all of your child's pro rata obligations under this lease? Or is it only saying that you're only guaranteeing your child's rent pro rata obligations under the lease? And there's big, big differences between those. So I think it's worth looking at. It's worth marking them up. I've had a lot of success on just where on, on the guarantees. I'll just mark up those guarantees, um, send it back, and I never hear back from them again. My guess is they're like, well, hey, they signed the guarantee. They don't look at what I've crossed out and what I haven't. And they go ahead and just put it back in their file and go forward then. So it's worth taking a look at. So it sounds like for, through reading those documents, you know, you're able to almost negotiate a little bit in what you did. You crossed off some items that you weren't going to guarantee. And that's essentially is, that's a contract, correct? Right. I mean, so that helps protect you and your wife in the event that something happens. Exactly. So, you know, I may put it in there. They may, they may say all lease obligations and I may say no all rent obligations or I may say, um, you know, rent obligations, pro rata share of, you know, and then name one of my children, those sorts of things. So just one or two words here, deleted, added, can really make a big difference um, if it would ever come down to that. So I know we all that aren't attorneys hate reading those legal contracts, but I'm sure you relish it a little bit, um, you know, getting to read those. But it sounds like it's really important for parents to take the time and understand what their financial obligation is. Yeah, and, and it's important. I mean, residential leases usually are not too long, so it's worth reading those. But even if you're not going to read the lease, because you, maybe you're just like, well, listen, my kid's on the hook for the residential lease. You're only on the hook for the guarantee. A lot of times the guarantees are a sentence, two sentences, you know, maybe a paragraph at the most. So I don't think we're asking a whole lot. I mean, you just need to really read that sentence or two very carefully and say, hey, is it saying that you're guaranteeing all obligations, just rental obligations, or just your child's pro rata share of the rental obligations. I think it's really important, too, to kind of set that example with your kids going forward, that it's really important to read those documents to fully understand what they sign. I mean, so often leading up to 18, you know, kids just kind of sign what their parents tell them to sign or or sign on the line and don't necessarily think about the contractual obligations. So that's I learned something new here, Phil. Thank you so much for sharing that. I am very thankful that my kids are a little bit away from this, but I also now fully understand why my parents were so adamant that I spend two years in the dorms versus moving out into housing right away. So with that, we're going to take a short break, and we will have more of Attorney Phil Rummers when we return. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is Phil Rummers, an attorney with Kramer, Maltoff & Hammes. Phil, we're talking today about preparing to launch. 
all of the things that our kids that are over 18 and are moving into the adult world really need to be thinking about. We talked about the legal ramifications of really the documents they need to have in place from an estate planning purpose, such as the healthcare power of attorney, HIPAA release, financial power of attorney. We were just also talking about some of those things that kids may not necessarily think about when moving out of home, such as signing their first lease. And um, you talked about the importance of really reading that document as parents could really be on the hook for a big financial obligation. Um, Phil, tell me a little bit about um, as we continue on that topic of of residential leases and what these kids are doing, tell us a little bit about the insurance piece. Because I know when I talk to kids that are just launching, that maybe their parents want them to sit down with us because they have their first job and talk about a Roth IRA. When I ask them about if they have renter's insurance, most of the time the answer is, oh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not sure what I have. Yeah, no, and it, and it is it really is important that there needs to be that that your children get renters insurance. If they're in the dorm, it's not usually such a big issue. The dorm provides liability insurance with that. Um, but a lot of people is like, well, do I really need renters insurance? I mean, I really don't have that much stuff. If I got all my stuff stolen or if it burned, you know, it'd be fifteen hundred dollars. It's just not that big a deal. But that's not really the issue with renters insurance. I mean, it certainly covers those types of things. But what you know, kind of getting back to what we were talking about before, you know, what happens if you have a guest and they come in and they trip on a rug? What happens if the kitchen does catch fire? What happens if there's some other damage that gets that gets done? These are things that under the lease that you would still be responsible for, that people could be suing you for, that you would be personally responsible for, but you would not have coverage necessarily for that under your parents' coverage anymore because it's a different dwelling. So it, it really is important to get um, renter's insurance. It's pretty cheap. Um, I usually comes out, you know, for me, you know, in Madison, about $160 a year. So it's cheap insurance. Um, it was interesting, again, when my son, you know, just rented a place down in Austin, the management company actually required them to have the insurance. And, and they had to have it when they signed the lease. So it wasn't just when they moved in, they had to have it. So, you know, who do I call? You know, to get this done because, you know, these units are going fast and they, they won't even let me sign until, you know, I show them that I have, you know, renter's insurance. So, you know, we got that in, in place, but it, but it is important to have that in place for really kind of the liability aspect if it's not just for the loss aspect of it then. Yeah, I'm happy that you mentioned the liability aspect because I do think our first thought when we think about renter's insurance is insurance, insuring our stuff. You know, what could happen if our stuff is stolen? And, you know, for college students in an apartment, there's a lot of people coming in and out. That's the big thought is around theft, but not necessarily the liability that goes along with that. No, and that, that's important. I mean, you know, you just don't know. It, it really is about, you know, liability protection, and it's cheap insurance, and you need to have that, you know, in place. Um, but that kind of leads into another liability aspect, and that's kind of vehicle liability. And, again, it, it probably hasn't been easy for my children you know, having to kind of grow up with an attorney where I worry about everything. Um, my neighbor just came to me the other day and said, we're getting a trampoline. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that sounds like a insurance nightmare. And he's like, yeah, I don't know if it's covered by insurance. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I wouldn't let my kids get it. And <laughs> of course, my son's sitting there all kind of angry at me. Um, but, you know, again, when we're look, looking at this liability, you know, insurance, we also need to think about, you know, vehicles. And there's a couple aspects that I kind of like to talk about with vehicle liability. And one of those has to do with rental trucks. 
Um, you might say, well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm renting a car. I'm covered under, you know, my own insurance for that. And you are if you're renting a car. But once you rent a truck, um, there's going to be exclusions on your personal policy for that. And so if there is an accident and there's damage either to the truck or somebody else's car or there's some liability issues, you are not going to be generally covered under your um, homeowners and your auto policies. And so that it's really important that if you know, you're moving your kids out of the house, you're renting a truck, a trailer, that, that you do make sure that you have some type of insurance. And that may mean through the rental truck company, and I know it's expensive, but it's a lot cheaper than if something happens because you're not covered otherwise on that. Absolutely. I would not have thought that your normal insurance would not cover those rental vehicles. We found out a, a couple of years ago when I was you working. find out the hard way? <laughs> a, a little bit. We were, um, um, I worked a lot with uh, a local soccer club, and we were renting a truck, and there was a, a s- small accident that somebody got into, and we found out, yeah, it was just not you know, covered on that. So um, we got through that. It was small, but it was something that kind of stuck in my mind. So um, you know, the other thing you know, to kind of think about is insurance is you know, if you're going to send your kids you know, to college with a car, you know, I mean, how much do you want your kids, you know, utilizing, you know, your your car and then letting them loan that out to other people? Again, if somebody's getting, you know, in an accident, they're loaning it out to their friends. Hopefully they haven't been at a party or anything like that. But, um, you know, you know, that can become, you know, you know, issues um, as well. I know one of my kids came back a couple of years ago and said, oh, hey, we got this great deal. If we bring our car, my roommates will, you know, pay for half of the parking as long as they get to utilize it. And I'll say, well, how about they bring their car and I'll pay for half the parking. And so, that, you know, that's what we, you know, we end up, di- you know, we doing. But again, it's something, you know, to consider. I mean, how much they're loaning it out. Um, you know, what type of protections does your insurance have? Do, you know, these other kids have insurance. You know, where's that coverage going to come from? For the most part, you're going to be protected. But it's probably worth having that talk, you know, with your children. Well, and I think to, well. to kind of piggyback on that, Phil, you know, you mentioned that, you know, your woe to your children that they grew up with an attorney as a dad. But in a lot of ways, it's allowed you to have a really open conversation with them about these items. I mean, your kids are probably well prepared um, by having the car conversation, all these other things that you that you sit down and take the time to talk to them about. They're probably angry, but maybe <laughs> but maybe but maybe well prepared. But um. <laughs> You know, I guess what goes around comes around. I get to tell all these stories, you know, about them with, you know, either on the radio or on, um, you know, in client meetings. And it just kind of reminds me that when my dad was a minister and it was always, you know, he would on a Sunday morning, he'd just rip out a story about one of our kids and you just sit there and blush. So maybe my kids are listening to this and can feel the same way. Um, but, you know, one other issue with the with the insurance that's probably worth looking at is to always look at your umbrella insurance you know, as well, you know, that you have out there. I mean, what an umbrella insurance policy does is it kind of, it it sits over and above your normal policy. So you may have a $500,000 liability policy for your homeowners. um, If, you know, you injured somebody, whether it's in a car accident or otherwise, that'd be for $500,000. But then what you do is you buy this umbrella that kind of sits over all of those policies, your auto, your homeowners, and that might be another million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars. And I really do encourage people. I mean, it's really important. You can imagine it doesn't take much for there to be a car accident where there's going to be that the people in the other car or maybe even in your own car are going to have damages of more than a million, two million, three million dollars. And so 
most people I'm saying, you know, depending on how much your net worth is, you probably should be looking at a three to five million dollar umbrella on that. And it'll cost you, you know, maybe four or five, six hundred dollars a year, but it's gonna, you know, protect you from kind of that catastrophic, you know, injury that can happen. Um, you know, th- these come in all different forms. I mean, I had, you know, a client that got into a, a snowmobile accident, and you know, who would know? But you know, one of the people were you know very injured, um, and you're very grateful at that point in time that you have a three million dollar policy more than a million because you can do a lot of settlement with three million dollars. Where if it's only a million, they might go through the insurance that co- the insurance company will kind of wave off because they've taken care of their coverage, and they'll be coming after you personally then. So similar to how we work with you on estate plans for our clients, when it comes to property and casualty insurance, you know, home and auto and umbrella policy, we like to bring in an area expert. But we always encourage our clients to look at that coverage, you know, at least every two years to make sure it's still competitive. I know that the it used to be if you had a million-dollar umbrella, you were fine. But that really, in truth, is is subject to a lot of different tests and making sure that a million might be fine for some people, and it might be really underinsured for others. And for the price that you pay, it's money well spent of making sure that you have that peace of mind. And it kind of depends what you have. I mean, maybe for, you know, our kids, only a million-dollar coverage is enough because, you know, there's not really anything to lose. There's nothing for them to attach. But if you've got, you know, a couple million dollars that could be at stake, I mean, do you want to, you know, lose everything because there was a car accident and four people got hurt rather than one person, and if you're getting sued by each of them for a million dollars, you know that that would be the the liability that you're trying to protect against. Great, thanks, Phil, so much for this information. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back again soon with more with Phil Rummers. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today, my guest is Phil Rummers, an attorney with Kramer, Maltoff & Hammes. Phil and I have been talking about preparing to launch and really what that means for our 18-year-old kids that are moving into the adult world. Um, some of them are going to college. Some of them are going straight into the workforce. But we've been talking today about all of the things that go into preparing them for success. Phil, I wanted to touch a little bit on financial responsibility. You know, we've talked so far about some of the um, estate planning documents, the legal responsibility, and how parents can help make sure that they're able to step in and help their kids. We've also talked about some of that liability as far as an insurance standpoint and from what it means to co-sign for um, a residential lease and the financial responsibility that comes with that. But a lot of that has really fallen on the parents, you know, of kind of being in the responsible piece. So I wanted to touch for a few minutes on financial responsibility and what we can do to help set our kids up for financial success. Um, one of the things that we talk about with our clients at Ellen Becker all the time is setting a budget. And you'd be surprised how many clients I have that come in that are a year away from retirement. And when I ask them, well, what's your budget for retirement? Because their big question is, can I retire? Do I have enough money? And when I ask them, well, what do you spend? Because it really comes down to knowing what you spend of whether or not you're going to be able to retire and, and have that same type of lifestyle. And so many clients come in and just really aren't sure of what that is. And I know a lot of us come from the standpoint of, you know, we are living where we live and in Wisconsin, Waukesha County, we're financially blessed that many of us don't have to keep a budget for, you know, make sure that we meet our obligations. 
But knowing how to budget and knowing what it costs you to live is a tool that we encourage our our college graduates, our high school graduates, the young kids that first start working with us to really commit to and make it part of their monthly practice. When I talk about budgeting, we often use the term here cash flow because we like the sound of that a little bit more because it's not to tell you what you can spend, but it's to tell you what you do spend and to really highlight where you do that. I know I started this exercise a little bit late, um, just a few years ago, that um, I really decided we needed to hunker down and start planning for the family. And I go through our credit card statements every month and I categorize everything. And you know, two things were really apparent to me. The first is that my husband spends way too much money on bourbon on a monthly basis. And the second was that there were so many things that we were paying for that we could do more efficiently just through a little bit of effort on our part by looking at what we spend and how we spend it each month. So kids leaving for college, you know, parents, talk to your kids about setting that budget. So often when they have credit cards or a debit card, you don't see that money coming in and out as, as easily. It's not as apparent to them what they're spending, but helping them set those expectations and that really that goal to be financially independent, the younger you start, the earlier off they're going to be. One other important topic that we talk about, and Phil, I know you've mentioned you've talked this about your kids, is having that emergency fund. You know, you mentioned that some of them are still on your payroll. Having an emergency fund is what's going to help eventually get those kids off their parents' payroll. An emergency fund we think of as really three to six months of those fixed expenses. You know, what would it cost your child to live of all their financial obligations if something happened and they were unable to work? Um, you know, how would their rent get paid? How much is that? Cell phone bill, car bill, all of those things that go into that emergency fund. You know, three months on the very, you know, aggressive side, um, six months is a nice conservative figure. But even setting that precedence young for an emergency fund, I can't tell you how many clients I met with over this past year with COVID where that emergency fund was their savior of, you know, getting furloughed from work without pay or getting hours cut and just having additional expenses of having to get their kids set up to do school from home. Just all sorts of things that I've never really quite had that great of a visualization of that emergency fund. And that was living it out. And these were young families, um, some of them just out of college, essentially, who had started doing that emergency fund years before. And the number one thing they said to me is, I'm so happy you told me to, to have an emergency fund five years ago when we started working together. I don't know how we would have made it through COVID without that. Right. And, what, and what's important is that your kids, you know, as they get out of college, that they're doing and they're setting up that emergency fund now, not because they'll have an emergency a month later, but again, it might happen five years later, and then they have that money that's available for them. And so it kind of eases, eases the stress um, and, and again, makes it less reliant that they need to come back, you know, to the parents to do that. But I think this whole, you know, talk about financial is, um, you know, is important. And it kind of flows into, you know, uh, one topic that I like to talk about a lot is about school loans. I mean, I, I really feel, and what we're seeing out there is that when the kids don't budget and, you know, they feel like, well, I'll pay that later. Well, they do have to end up paying it later and it gets expensive. And there is a big difference between, you know, being $50,000 in debt and $70,000 in debt. It just takes that much longer. And so, you know, if they can set a budget, I mean, what is a reasonable price to pay 
um, you know, for their entertainment, what's reasonable price for their rent, and they can keep that down there so that 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 debt load doesn't become more expensive. That's going to save a lot of you know effort for them a lot later. Get them out of debt, get them to financial independence, so they can really start enjoying their life. But it also becomes important because how does that affect us, you know, as, as parents? Again, a lot of times what they're doing is with these loans is they come back to the parents and say, well, we need you to sign on this loan. And again, just like with the, with the leases, you need to understand what type of guarantee you, know, you are signing for. Are you, are you co-signing with the, you know, with the children? So you're a co-signer, you're an obligor under it. And then if the children fall behind, does that affect your credit? Okay. Or are you just guaranteeing that, that if they don't pay, then they'll come after you and then, and then you're, you're still required to pay, but maybe it doesn't affect your credit. But again, you'll want to know as far as, you know, the guarantee, you know, what you're signing, um, what, what, what you're committing to, when would you have to pay it? Are you guaranteeing the whole amount? Are you guaranteeing just a part of it? And so that, that becomes really important. That's um, a really important provision to understand because I think so many of our clients that their kids are heading off to school and getting these loans they're also in that stage in their life where now the hope is that they're coasting into retirement, getting the last bit of savings that they need. They're heading towards essentially their 30-year-long vacation they've worked so hard at. Um, you know, not understanding those terms of, of the lease, the lease, the loan, all of those things of co-signing with their kids can make a big financial impact. Right. Um, and, you know, and that, that just flows into, you know, we've already touched base on credit cards a couple times. But again, if the kids start, you know, you know, pushing the credit card bill, you know, again, that's going to have to be paid back. Are they paying interest on that? I mean, it just becomes a little bit of a cumulative effect. By setting a budget, you keep that down. And there's ways that you can assist with that as well. You can have a, you know, you can set credit limits. I mean, if, if they're using your credit card, you know, I'll go in there and play with those limits, you know, all the time. I'll be saying, okay, you know, the younger kids maybe only have a limit of $1,000. That way, if something does go wrong, they go off the rails a little bit you know, it, it, that it's, it's going to stop it. And then, you know, as the older kids and they're buying things for the houses and they've proven their responsibility, you know, we can give them a little bit more, you know, flexibility. So again, I think it's worthwhile to kind of look over those budgets, look over those debt loads, especially those credit card debt loads to keep all that in check. Absolutely. You know, we get asked a lot by, um, you know, younger clients that we're just starting to work with of, you know, what's the best way for me to accumulate wealth? I want to make sure I'm saving properly. And savings, you know, a big component of it, but it sounds like common sense. But the other component is not spending more than you make. And again, you know, like I said, it sounds like common sense, but I, we see it time and time again of people who aren't able to, to do that. So we always encourage our clients, whether they're retired or whether they're just starting out, to never charge more on a credit card than what they can pay off in that month. You know, it's just important to you know, keep those amounts you know, down because whatever you know, you're spending now is going to have to be paid back later on. And then you know, it's harder to do once you have a family, you have other expenses, you kind of want to move on. You know, from life at that point in time. Well, Phil, it was so much fun talking to you about this today. I am very grateful that my my oldest is just 12 and I've got a few more years to kind of check some of these items off. But um, thank you for sharing this information. For our listeners out there, this is something that when you work with Ellen Becker Investment Group, we're going to look at and we're going to talk about your specific situation of what do you need and what do your kids need um, to make sure that you, as you head into retirement, have peace of mind that your kids are well taken care of. 
So Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. and on Sundays from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. If you've liked today's show and want to know more, please visit www.ellenbecker.com or call us at 262-691-3200. As always, I hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen.